This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program... I have had a lifelong commitment to the human rights cause. We hear a lot about human rights, but what are they? From the ashes of the Second World War emerged this never again sentiment building on the fundamental values of human dignity and human rights to actually move into a different future. This Universal Declaration of Human Rights may well become the international Magna Carta of all men everywhere. In so many situations around the world, there is again this contempt for the other, the contempt for the human being, the contempt for human dignity. Hello and welcome again to Inside Geneva. I'm Imogen Folks, And as you heard in our introduction there, today's programme will focus on human rights and on the man who's now in what many call the United Nations' toughest job, Volker Turk from Austria, and with a long track record working at the UN, started his new job as Human Rights Commissioner at the end of last year. After a few weeks getting to grips with the challenges facing him, and there are many, as we'll find out during this podcast, he invited me to sit down with him for an in-depth interview. A bit of background before we listen to that. Mr. Turk took over from previous Human Rights Commissioner Michelle Bachelet. She faced fierce criticism over the UN's approach to human rights violations in China. Meanwhile, another member of the UN Security Council, Russia, stands accused of war crimes in Ukraine, and multiple investigations are ongoing to try to bring those responsible to justice. All this as the Universal Declaration on Human Rights celebrates its 75th anniversary. So, a lot to talk about then, when I joined Volker Turk in his office in Geneva's Palais Wilson. Let's go back to, say, this time last year. Um, did you expect to be sitting in this office? No, I didn't. <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I, I was just appointed as the Undersecretary General for Policy and Strategic Coordination, and I had no idea that I would end up being back in Geneva. Were you daunted? I mean, it's been described as the toughest UN job. You know, you don't get to do nice things like hand out food and stuff, really. So. I have had a lifelong commitment to the human rights cause. And I mean, yes, when I worked almost almost 30 years for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, it was human rights work because I was doing it um, from the protection side of things, which is essentially operational human rights issues with, with a very specific, very vulnerable groups of people. I mean, refugees, internally displaced, stateless people. And that's a microcosm of the human rights world. And it's a microcosm because it gives you the legal tools, it gives you the policy tools, it gives you the operational tools. And I mean, in a way, whatever I did in the past has really prepared me for it. A wave of Russian missile strikes on cities across Ukraine. The unthinkable has happened here. We have seen the cruel face of... Putin's army. Plans to evacuate civilians from two besieged Ukrainian cities come to nothing after a short... But you're new in the job and you're facing a number of challenges. And one of the key ones is also, of course, the conflict 
in Ukraine. You have been there, one of your first trips. There is a real demand for accountability. We do see violation of international law on a daily basis. How is this accountability going to be achieved, though? I mean, it's, it's well, first of all, my office, the Human Rights Office, has had an uninterrupted presence in Ukraine since 2014, meaning that we have been able to document, monitor, and report on, on human rights violations, including, of course, violations of international humanitarian law. We have a very strong linkage both with the International Criminal Court, and they are present in Ukraine, so that is part of the accountability. Another part is to support the local authorities, the Ukrainian authorities. When I was there, I met, for instance, with the prosecutor general. They have started over, they have opened over 40,000 investigations into potential war crimes, and we need to support them with expertise, with advice, so that they can actually do their job to find the evidence, gather the evidence, and be able to bring it forward in judicial proceedings that could either take place in Ukraine or in other countries. In former Yugoslavia, we did actually see leaders end up in The Hague, military leaders and political leaders. Is this a prospect that you can see for Russia's leaders, for Vladimir Putin? Well, I... Obviously, I'm not there to speculate on what happens in the future, but one thing is clear. There is a huge need for accountability and justice. And we see this, I saw this when I was there by talking also to the, the victims and the survivors and the families of those who lost uh, people. Um, and it's important to work on accountability, but it's also very important, and that's why I'm saying the emphasis has to be on making sure that the local authorities, the Ukrainian authorities, the prosecution authorities are able to gather the evidence, document, and make sure that it holds in front of a court. Is it, in your view, essential to a sustainable peace to have this kind of accountability? We know that in each and every situation when finally we hope a country emerges from war and moves into peace, you need to work on transitional justice issues and accountability. You have to address it. But let's also not forget, and I've seen this in many situations around the world, we also have to focus on the victims. And there are a lot of things that can be done already for the victims now uh, in terms of redress, in terms of making sure that we re respond to them and to their needs including to the mental health needs. I mean, I was shocked by how many children are affected by mental health issues. So we also need to keep focusing on this and not just on legal proceedings. We need to have a, a victim-centered approach in terms of care, in terms of responding to, to their needs. And that's, that's incredibly important. Late last night, the UN's human rights chief released a report accusing the Chinese government of possibly committing crimes against humanity. The UN's human rights office said there was credible evidence of torture, forced medical treatment and sexual violence in camps, which Beijing calls training centers. These are the camps China doesn't want you to see. As yet more evidence emerges that what's happened behind these barbed wire fences to Uyghurs and mostly Muslim minorities may constitute crimes against humanity. I'm going to move to another big challenge now, and that is uh, China. We waited, myself and my colleagues in Geneva, a very long time for the report into China. It came out at the 
five minutes to midnight, literally, in your predecessor's term of office, it suggests possible crimes against humanity in Xinjiang province. What are you going to do about that? So it's a very important report that was issued by my office. I emphasize this. It's my office's report. Um, it has raised, as you said, very serious, very pressing human rights concerns. And it is my duty to follow up on them with the Chinese authorities. How? Well, by engaging with them, by having conversations with them, by finding ways and means to follow up. Do you expect them to be responsive? I mean, from, from, from a journalist's point of view, it has looked like a stalling process constantly. Well, let's not forget, my predecessor was able to go and visit China. And there were a number of things that she was able to do. For example, on issues of legislation, on having uh, also regular dialogues with them. And that's important. One shouldn't underestimate that. China is a very important country. It has, it's a member of the Security Council. It's, it has a lot of regional influence. And of course, at the national level, there are many things that we need to discuss. So on the human rights front, it will be important to have China as a country with, it, with which I can engage. And, and that's at the global level, to the regional level, that's also at the national level. Overnight, Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, suspending the accounts of multiple journalists from news outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post and CNN. The move sets a dangerous precedent at a time when journalists all over the world are facing censorship, physical threats and even worse. Uh, The United Nations is urging Elon Musk to ensure human rights are central to Twitter's management. In an open letter to Musk, UN Human Rights Chief Volker Turk says, like all companies, Twitter needs to understand the harms associated with its platform. You made that interesting and indeed very newsworthy statement, open letter to Elon Musk. It, this kind of, as you say, the, the human rights of the future, it's this kind of development, big tech, social media, you think the UN needs to be more involved? I mean, I think... First of all, we have seen big tech, the fourth industrial revolution is, I mean, has a huge potential to do all kinds of things, both good in the middle and not so good. The human rights are the guardrails to ensure that whatever happens on the, on the not so good side is, is that is that we are protected from it. And I mean, and that's why I wrote this open letter to Elon Musk, because the day before, we had an issue on Twitter and we, too much to our surprise, when we tried to call our usual contacts, the human rights team, they had been fired. So there was no one there that we could actually talk to about some of the issues that we normally engage with. That is worrying, actually. And that was why I thought it was really important to write an open letter to Elon Musk to also set out these six considerations on the human rights front when it comes to anyone who manages social media platform of the size that Twitter has. But it goes for Meta and Facebook, if you like, for any, for, for Instagram, TikTok. It, it applies to whoever is a social media platform. Did he ever answer you, Elon? No. <laughs> I didn't no. get an answer. 
But there was, I mean, we did what is interesting, there were reactions from those who work both in Twitter as well as in other social media platforms, and they told us that they had read the letter and they appreciated it, and they are going to take it into account. Some of the key challenges, China, Russia, and the limits or otherwise of the big tech billionaires facing new human rights chief Volker Turk. Coming up, we'll hear his thoughts on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 75 years old this year. But before that, a heads up about our next Inside Geneva podcast. Now, normally, listeners will know we come out every other Tuesday. But our next episode will, exceptionally, be on Thursday, February 23rd. To mark one year since Russia invaded Ukraine, we'll be looking at the prospects for ending this war. What could peace look like and what makes a good, sustainable peace agreement? We'll be joined by experts with great experience of conflict resolution to find out why some peace negotiations take years, why a few succeed, but why so many fail. Do join us then. It was a conference to write a people's charter, opening with the words, We, the people of the United Nations. Now, in 1948, Eleanor Roosevelt brought the Universal Declaration of Human Rights to the newly born United Nations. I'm going to read you the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Now, therefore, the General Assembly proclaims this Universal Declaration of Human Rights as a co- it was a landmark document. Today, 193 member states have signed it. It outlines the basic rights and freedoms that every human being, regardless of their status or where they were born, are entitled to. Dignity, liberty, equality, the right to life, freedom from slavery, freedom of expression, and much, much more. But as 1948 and the horror of world war that came before it recede into distant memory, I wanted to know if Volker Turk worries that nowadays the declaration is more honoured in the breach than the observance. Are you concerned that in this 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, that countries from all parts of the world, that their views on what these fundamental principles are are, are diverging, and, and some are even rowing away from these principles. Yeah, I am very much concerned that we lose the essence of what the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was and meant was meant to be in response to cataclysmic events during the second, before and during the Second World War. I mean, let's just recall where we were at the time. We, Holocaust, world war that killed millions of people. We had millions of people, either refugees or displaced. We had incredible breakdown of, 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 of many things from the economy, from the social systems. I mean, destruction en masse in many, in Europe, but also in other parts of the world. And from that, from the ashes of the second world war emerged this never again sentiment building on the fundamental values of human dignity and human rights to actually move into a different future. 
that's how the Universal Declaration of Human Rights came about. And we need to regain that space because we see in so many situations around the world that there is, again, this contempt for the other, the contempt for the human being, the contempt for human dignity, and we need to absolutely regain that. Sell it to me then. I'm, I'm an under 30 American or a Brit. You know, there are plenty of studies that show there's very little interest in these principles. Why is it relevant to me? It's relevant because the cost of living crisis, for example, that affects people in Britain, in many parts of the world, in Europe, but let's not forget, first and foremost, in the most vulnerable parts of the developing world, in the global south, the cost of living crisis is a human rights issue. It's a human rights issue because it affects, if you like, the, adi- and the human rights language is adequate standard of living. We all have a right to an adequate standard of living. We can demand it from the government and, and that's an important, very important power to have, to actually know that you have an entitlement, you have a right to an adequate standard of living, especially in the most difficult of circumstances. That's very empowering. Do you see an ideological clash between countries who talk about rights as very much this collective well-being versus the individual rights, I, you know, women's rights, race, ethnic, LGBT, things like that. So it's, and that's hopefully what we're going to achieve next year, that we actually bring back both the universality of human rights, meaning that these are universal values. These are not Western values or values from one part of the world. They are universal. They are embedded in all religions, in all spiritual and philosophical traditions from every corner of the world. That's important to regain that. And the other one is to regain the what we call, sorry for the term, the indivisibility of human rights, meaning there are civil, political, economic, social and cultural rights. And they cannot be separated into different boxes. They are one and the same. They are one coherent whole. The chair, it was a woman, Eleanor Roosevelt, who chaired the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, when she talked about human rights, she talked about it taking place in the little, what she called the little places, meaning schools, classrooms, uh, kindergartens, uh, workplaces where, you know, factories, uh, the shops, uh, the markets. That's where human rights take place every day. And We need to bring that knowledge back because if you are arrested arbitrarily because of your political opinion, it concerns us all and it also concerns us if you're not able to have an adequate standard of living because of the debt, the incredible debt burdens that arose as a result of the COVID pandemic where some of the developing countries are suffering enormously and where it becomes a global equity issue for us to address it through another look at the financial architecture. Have you got key goals for your time in office, or let's say the first year in office? Yes. I mean, obviously, I mean, I went into this position with a vision for, for what I hope to achieve on the human rights front. And I mean, one thing is, and which coincides with the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, is, of course, to regain the space that human rights needs to have in, in governance writ large. 
both at the national level, at the regional level, at the global level. Sometimes that's the impression that I got from looking at, at the human rights uh, community. I felt it was a bit of a lip service. It's sort of ticking the box type thing. But actually, if you look at today's issues and the issues of the future, human rights is an answer. It is a solution to things. It brings people and the world together. It has it was incredibly inspiring for the last three generations. And I hope that I hope that we regain that force of transformation, of inspiration, of motivation, of energy when it comes to today's issues and, and also the issues of the future. The second is it's incredibly important that human rights are also a solution to future issues, including really taking into account what future generations, what young people today, but also what future generations, what type of world we are going to bequeath on them. And that's a rights issue because no one speaks for them at the moment, but we need to really find a way to take that into account because of the actions and the policies and the decisions that we take today. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. My thanks to Volker Turk for taking the time to give us that in-depth interview. A reminder again, join us on Thursday, February 23rd for a special edition of Inside Geneva looking at how to make peace. I'm Imogen Folks. Thanks for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our previous episodes. You can hear analysis of the war in Ukraine, how the International Red Cross unites prisoners of war with their families, or why survivors of human rights violations turn to the UN in Geneva for justice. I'm Imogen Folks. Thanks again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.